Investing your money shouldn't be confusing or frustrating. Betterment helps answer the question, what is the best way to invest my money? Any investing involves risk, but right now, Weeds listeners can get one month managed free. For more information, visit betterment.com slash weeds. That's betterment.com slash weeds. Betterment, investing made better. Hi guys, here's a live bonus episode of The Weeds recorded at the Vox Conversations Conference earlier this week. Not our usual weeds music. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it doesn't work. Do. Uh, <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to a, a live episode of, uh, of the Weeds Policy Podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're changing our introduction text, and I'm, I'm still working on it. Um, but we're really glad to be here with you all. Uh, this has been like a, a super busy week in, in policy, so much so that we're not even going to probably have a chance to address the Canadian uh, softwood lumber dispute, um, <laughs> which I, I happen to feel passionately about. Um, what but, is your TLDR? Give me your one sentence on Canadian softwood lumber dispute. One sentence. Trump is actually right about this. Boom. Wow. Um, Wait, we have one, like two more sentences. Now I'm just curious. No, it's uh, we've got to wait till next week. You're the Canadian. I, I you need to own up to what's happening with these stumpage fees. <laughs> it's outrageous. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, I, I, I think we, we want to talk about the, the big tax reform plans that are, that are coming down the road, uh, but also because we talk about health care all the time, and there is new health care repeal happening, or well, maybe not happening. But wait, before we tee that up, yesterday, in addition to having a lot of health care reform news, is the day that Sir Cliff ruined the entire Congressional <laughs> Republican Conference's day. <laughs> Sorry, so, guys. I, I would also, as we as we intro that, I want to not quite lose sight of the story, which I think is actually an important story because what was happening and the level of confusion speaks maybe to broader dynamics within this ongoing healthcare process that are worth drawing out a little bit. All right. Well, let's do tax reform. I think, Matt, you're going to kick us off, right, on okay. what's going on with the tax plan. So Donald Trump won the election a while ago. He was inaugurated, I think it was 97 days ago. Uh, he's been working on his tax reform plan, and it was released yesterday to great fanfare, and it is a one-page document. It has, I think, eight bullet points. Um, it is basically the same vague tax plan he had in the campaign, but they took out some of the detail elements. <laughs> um, the Treasury Secretary claims that 100 staffers worked on it. It's about 200 words long. Um, and what it, what it amounts to, this was the campaign plan. Uh, tax policy was not a big focus during the campaign, uh, but Trump is proposing basically a, a very large tax cut. He's proposing to eliminate the estate tax entirely. He's proposing to eliminate the alternative minimum tax entirely, both the provisions that you know sort of only help uh, the most affluent families. He's proposing to cut the corporate income tax rate to 15%. He's proposing uh, cuts in all the individual rates. Um, there's a very slight pay for in elimination of some tax deductions, but the, the biggest ones are staying there on the table. And I guess most intriguingly is he's putting forward the proposition that uh, pass-through business entities, which is basically a, uh, a partnership business as opposed to a, a big publicly held company, should also be taxed at the 15% rate. Um, so they characterize that as a small business tax rate. Uh, but the sense in which the businesses are small is that they have a small number of 
owners. So like Donald Trump's business is a quote unquote small business uh, by, by that standard, uh, which he would not otherwise ordinarily call it a small business. Um, so he's delivering a gigantic tax cut to himself. Uh, it's really impossible to say anything about the other parameters. Like he says what the three tax brackets will be, but not what income level they'll start at, which <laughs> is obviously influences it. Um, and yeah, so nobody knows what they've been doing for the past four months, uh, why it would take 100 people to copy and paste the campaign website. I want to read a quote that our colleague Jim Tankersley, who loves tax reform the way Sarah loves health care, <laughs> uh, got on this. Because I really never would have expected to read this quote about a tax plan re released by a Republican presidential president, I guess, is where we are in life. Um, <laughs> So this is Alan Cole, who's an economist at the Tax Foundation. The Tax Foundation, just to get the sort of DC ecosystem right here, the Tax Foundation are the people who exist to cut taxes. Like, that is their role in life. They do a lot of good research. They do good work. I've relied on their, on, on their work before. But they are an organization oriented to favorable analyses of tax cuts. Um, and so Alan Cole says... About this plan, we are just in theatrics mode, even though it's a chance to do something. He said that Trump officials still think of how does stuff play on cable news. They've built a culture that is not ideologically predisposed to listening to someone who cares about little details. It feels like we're in a kind of perpetual campaign, and as a result, there is no policy. That is searing from the Tax Foundation on a plan that if they had come out with real details, I think that the tax foundation would have liked a lot of pieces of it. And it also suggests how little actual policy process is happening. They're not going to the organizations around town that a Republican presidential administration would normally go to and talk to them and get their buy-in and get their support and deal with their concerns. This is exactly what happened on healthcare to them, where they had no support. And it looks like they are building the same process on taxes, only this time out of the White House itself. Right. But I think that's actually a huge difference. Because like when I think of the health care process, you know, Paul Ryan did actually write a bill. And it was super unpopular. And they did not consult with a lot of health care groups on it who quickly came out against it. But they actually wrote through, you know, you could analyze it. And you could say, here is what would change for people. Like here, you could get as you know detailed about here is how the subsidies would change for someone who earns $30,000 and is 50 years old. Um, this doesn't really get to that level. Like Matt was saying, there's three tax brackets, but you don't know who is in which tax bracket, which makes it very, very hard for someone like Ellen Gall at the Tax Foundation to say what they think about it. And it feels like there's almost, it feels like there's a cost to releasing something like this. Like releasing something like this almost moves things backwards rather than forward, because it seems to suggest that the administration is not thinking seriously about what they actually want to do on this. Like, I think it's actually very different from the healthcare process, um, because on the healthcare process, Trump had a very similar, like, in, in terms of the granularity, healthcare plan. That was basically, it was basically repeal Obamacare and allow insurance sales across state lines. So it was like not, it, it was the same length, a bunch of bullet points. Um, and they, that never really got rolled out. They went in totally different directions. They actually spelled out the details of here's what it would look like. This feels very different that we're starting from a place where it's just big sweeping language. And like, you know, Alan Cole was saying, like, quote you're reading, that there's not any sort of attention to 
the granularity, and that seems to almost step them backwards on tax reform to say, like, well, this doesn't look like a partner who really, like, wants to, like, engage on policy issues. Well, and I, what's interesting is that uh, Josh uh, Dossi has a, a story in, in Politico today in which he reports that the White House's understanding of this is that it's the complete opposite of what they did with health care, that they've learned their lessons from the health care thing, and that the problem with the health care bill was that they outsourced the bill writing to Paul Ryan. So this time, like, they're going to keep it in-house. And uh, instead of, and in particular on this, right, so the House Republicans have been working on this tax plan that uh, journalists love to talk about because it involves an exotic new tax. Um, what tax and, is that, Matt? Well, it's a destination-based cash flow tax. Um, <laughs> So hot Which right some now. people one have started very, to call. One of the very few rooms you can get a laugh with that punchline. <laughs> a lot like, of people, that wasn't even, I think, technically constructed as a joke. A lot of people around town have tried to sort of dumb it down by calling it the border-adjusted tax. But really, all consumption taxes are border-adjusted, and it's 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 much more nuanced. Anyway, it's a lot of shade. The Trump right people there. are are sweeping that all aside and basically reiterating their campaign promise to do a, I don't want to say, it's simplistic. Like, it's just a tax cut. Like, there is a standard deduction, and it's going to get bigger. There are rates, and they're going to go down. Um, there's no real reform. I mean, they can call it tax reform, but there's no there's no change in the conceptual underpinnings of the tax code. It's just going to raise a lot less revenue. And they don't address the question of, do you mean this to be permanent or temporary? Are you looking at a 60-vote or a 50-vote thing? There's like a process bullet point on the document, and it's like, this is the beginning of a process where we're going to talk with senators and members of Congress. So it's not... It's, it's clear that there was a big push to get some stuff out the door this week because of the 100 days thing. And it's not clear that there's any... Um, thought as to, like, how does this make it more likely that a tax-cutting bill will pass two months from now versus if they had just said, yeah, we have those campaign pledges and we're working to try to make them happen. So I think it's important to, to spend a moment here on that 50-60, does it go permanent, is a temporary issue? Because this is, in the same way that the health care bill, one of the foundational problems they had that they never figured out, was that they did not have 60 votes, so they needed to do reconciliation, which meant they couldn't do a lot of regulations, which meant a lot of their core framework fell apart. Here, too, they have, have the same issue. So what they want to do, in theory, is a permanent tax cut passed with 51 votes in the Senate, because there's no way they're getting 60 for anything in the neighborhood of what they're looking at. But the rules of that 51-vote process of reconciliation are, among other things, that it cannot increase the budget deficit after 10 years. So when the Joint Committee on Taxation scores this bill, it cannot, in years 11 through 20, make the deficit go up. When your plan is a multi-trillion dollar unpaid-for tax cut, one of its outcomes is the budget deficit goes up in the long term. So the Bush administration had this same problem. And what they did was... <laughs> Whatever I think about this, like I actually like I almost like forget how insane it was. They just said the tax went away after ten years. Like literally on the day of the ten year note, like the tax was gone, so it wouldn't hurt the deficit at all, which you can do. Um, and what ended up happening was Obama took away the 
tax increases for the very, very rich, uh, the tax cut for the very, very rich, but kept the tax cuts down the line. So they kept a lot of that tax cut, in fact. But a lot of Republicans think this was a problem because if you want to get these supply side effects, if you want to convince businesses they can invest, if you want to get all the things that tax reform is supposed to do, you have to give businesses certainty that this is going to stick around. So you want it to be permanent. That's what Kevin Brady, the head of Ways and Means, has said. It's what Paul Ryan has said. It's what the Trump administration has said. But for it to be permanent, it cannot increase the deficit outside the 10-year window, or they have to get votes from Democrats. They have no plan to do either thing at all, and nor do they have any explanation of what they're going to do here. So sitting behind this plan of which there is no details, there is a process collision, which they have no theory about, which they have no plan for, and which at some level they're going to have to figure out, or maybe... Or and maybe like, not. Often they just don't well, figure these things out. Often they don't. Out. Like often Th- it's that's just why like healthcare has to go first, <laughs> statutorily. So I have a question for Matt. So what would this? One thing I'm curious about: if we saw this coming more from, like, let's say, like the think tank world of the right, or like Paul Ryan, like you mentioned, the destination-based cash flow tax. Sorry, sometimes yeah. I get them a lot of order, but like that might be a part of it. Like, what would this look like if this was like the tax plan coming out of kind of like the mainstream? right at the moment? And like, how would that be different from the document we got from Trump? Okay, so the House Republicans had sort of like two or three like big conceptual differences. One is that they are very committed to doing the Affordable Care Act repeal first. Because repealing the Affordable Care Act involves a very, very large long-term cut to Medicaid, right? So that Medicaid cut pays for a lot of tax cutting in the House Republican vision. And then they were envisioning a revenue-neutral reform from the new lower post-repeal baseline. And we're talking like an $800 billion Medicaid cut, so that gives you like yeah, it's, a decent you, amount you, of space You can cut a lot with. of taxes. Um, and, then, and then you can throw in a little bit of dynamic scoring on top of that, get yourself a trillion-dollar tax cut. Um, and so then they, they had this idea on, on the corporate side, which was to... Um, Cut the right now the corporate income tax rate is 35%. They were going to cut it down to 20%. And they were going to try to make that revenue neutral by um, changing the whole base of the, the corporate income tax uh, to the destination-based cash flow tax. Uh, basically, have a tax on imports, not on exports. It's all a little bit complicated. But the point is, uh, the difficulty with something like that is that some people have to pay higher taxes, and they were objecting to it. Um, on individual side, I think the House Republicans have not gotten as detailed in their own thinking, but they had been saying it would be a similar kind of thing, where they would be bringing rates down and closing different kinds of loopholes and deductions. Um, the one Republicans like to talk about in this vein is that you can deduct state and local taxes from your federal income tax, Uh, That mostly helps affluent people who live in liberal states. So a lot of conservative members of Congress have it as their, like, least favorite uh, tax deduction. But this whole mechanism, it was somewhat of, like, an intellectual thing of beauty. But the problem with it has always been, A, the healthcare repeal has had very little political support in the Senate. And B, the destination-based tax flow... uh, the destination-based cash flow tax <laughs> has had no support in the Senate. And the interdependence of these two things has been making all their problems worse and worse and worse. So, like, every time you would hear Tom Cotton 
cast some doubt on the reasonableness of the House healthcare reform plan. Part of what's going on is that Walmart has its headquarters in Arkansas, and they were very opposed to this House tax plan. So if they can hold up the healthcare plan, they're also holding up the tax plan. And they were really getting nowhere with it. So, I, I mean, to understand some of where the White House is coming from, it's like House Republicans had cooked up this scheme that was like, it was kind of brilliant in the way it all worked together, but it's very complicated and everything depends on everything else. And they weren't able to get it moving at all. So you can sort of see where the frustration comes from to say like, okay, guys, like back to basics. We're Republicans. We want to cut taxes. Let's just take all the numbers and, and make the numbers lower. Investing your money shouldn't be confusing or frustrating. That's why you should try Betterment, the smarter, goal-based investing service. With tools and calculators to help set goals and understand risk, Betterment streamlines the investing process and tailors a plan for you. Betterment offers lower management fees compared to traditional services, like 0.25% on assets under management. And they also offer advanced tax-saving strategies. You'll benefit from data-driven investing strategies and a tech-focused user experience that aims to deliver higher returns at a lower cost. Remember, any investing does involve risk, but right now, the Weeds listeners can get one month managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Weeds. Betterment, investing made better. We are getting deep into the weeds of this plan, and I want to back out for a second, because everything that's going on here is appalling. And... <laughs> I think it is important to just keep in mind on a basic human citizen level that Donald Trump ran for president and when he was running for president and then very importantly after he was elected president, he had, among many other things, two things that were very different with him from traditional Republicans. One was he said he was not one of these Republicans who wanted to cut taxes on rich people. He wanted 60 minutes and said, my, my tax plan, it's going to raise taxes on the very wealthy. This actually ended up confusing the media so badly that when he released an actual plan that cut taxes on the wealthy, they just said it raised taxes, but it didn't. So, but he said this. And then after the election, Steve Mnuchin, in his uh, Treasury hearings, his hearings for Treasury Secretary, said, rich people are not going to get a tax cut here. Uh, rich people are not going to be paying any less. People might get a tax cut, but not rich people. Simultaneously, Donald Trump said before the election, I'm not one of these Republicans who believes like healthcare should just, the government should get out of it. Everybody's going to have healthcare. It's going to be better healthcare, going to have lower deductibles. Um, and if you can't pay, the government is going to pay. He said all of these things. Then the election happened. And he did not come out and say, I was lying. He came out and he said, everybody's going to have healthcare. It is going to be better healthcare. There are going to be lower deductibles. The... White House's legislative agenda right now, currently, is, on the one hand, a massive tax cut for rich people, and on the other hand, a health care plan that takes health, we don't have the new one scored, but takes health care from, let's say, 24 million people. Let's use the old score, even though we think the new one will be worse. And the degree of just promise-breaking, of faux populism here, is really tremendous, now, one thing is maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe nobody cares about it. I don't really buy that. Um, I do think something that is interesting about Trump, it's going to be a very interesting political theme for him going forward, is he was able to run in 2016 without a real record. And so it was sort of like Schrodinger's Trump. And everybody could just decide that he supported whatever they wanted him to support. And we did reporting to this effect, and you saw it in polling. But people sort of thought that, hey, Trump doesn't really 
believe any of this stuff anyway. He's a businessman. He's a deal maker. He's a pragmatic guy. Um, he's a good guy. He cares about the little guy. So whatever he's saying, you say that to get elected. But he's going to come in. He's going to do the right thing. And so now there's going to be this sort of like we're opening the box and like the cat is dead. <laughs> and, and going forward now, we'll see maybe nothing passes. So people never really feel it. And that creates a little bit more wiggle room for Trump going forward. But if he gets any of this stuff done... I think the Trump administration thinks what would be really good for them politically is to pass this health care bill. I think they think, and we'll talk, about, we'll talk about that more later, I think they think it would be really good to pass this tax bill. What they need is achievements. I think it would be really bad for them to pass any of these bills because people are not going to like what they do, and it will instantly collapse the sort of Donald Trump potential positions into the Donald Trump actual position, into the dead cat Trump administration. And that's not going to be good for them. But, but while we're getting deep into, like, how this bill is constructed and, like, they sent the cover page instead of the actual report and the whole thing, like, it's this absurd – there's so much absurdity that it is hard to get back and, like, say, actually, like, this bill – this presidency is built on a lie. Like, big a fundamental lie, a lot of people believed. Like, I do a decent yeah. amount of reporting, mostly on the healthcare law, talking Sorry. to conservatives who are enrolled in the healthcare law and um, – it is during Kentucky. I was just in Tennessee a few weeks ago. And there is still a 100% um, belief that, you know, he is going to cover everybody. And, like, I understand it more than I did, you know, before I started doing this reporting because he said he was going to cover everybody. And he said again and again in the debates and on 60 Minutes and in interviews that he wasn't like other Republicans, that he was going to be very different. Um, one of the kind of interesting wrinkles I found in the reporting that I've been doing to this I think he might have more wiggle room on this than you're estimating in that a lot of the a lot of the Trump voters I talked to, the question I asked them is, you know, why did you vote for Trump when you have Obamacare? And the answer that surprised me that I've got a lot is, you know, if I lose my Obamacare, like as long as like other people are losing it, too, that's fine. Like I talked to a guy in Tennessee two weeks ago um, who was telling me, you know, I asked him, well, do you think Trump's going to give you something better? And he said, you know, Trump probably won't give me very much, but at least he's not going to give other people very much either. Um, and it felt like a lot of kind of resentment of other people who are getting benefits, like an idea that there were, you know, people who don't deserve these benefits who are getting them and that they were, you know, and this is, you know, all theoretical at this point. Maybe this changes when you actually use your health insurance. Like this was someone who's very happy with his health insurance, had just had cataract surgery, like thought Obamacare was working well for him and maybe, you know, actually losing coverage, things change. But this is something that's kind of come up unprompted again and again in the reporting that I've been doing is that a willingness to say I'm fine losing what I have if it means these other people also lose what they have. Um, I don't know how that ends up shaking out, but it's something that surprised me in the reporting I'm doing. Well, so that's actually a good opportunity to shift gears, though, I think, because like, what if the bill took a lot of valuable consumer protections away from millions of people while exempting members of Congress yes. from those changes. Who would write a bill like that? <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that might make people feel like the opposite of what you were saying. Yes, I agree. So are we, is that our transition yeah, to healthcare? That, that's the transition. Uh, what better transition are you going to get than that? No, That was on. a bridge to healthcare. It was. Um, yeah, so I guess let's go right into it. So as many of you likely know, on Wednesday night, kind of unexpectedly, um, congressional Republicans released this amendment to the um, 
American Healthcare Act, this healthcare bill they've been pushing for about a month or two. Um, and the amendment really moved the bill to the right. It was an amendment to get the Freedom Caucus on board. It would let states wave out of some of the really key Obamacare programs, the requirement that healthy people are always charged the same as sick people, and that um, insurance companies have to cover this set of essential health benefits, which includes doctor visits and hospital trips and maternity care and prescription drugs. Um, so this was at first um, the news of the night that they had released this plan. It moves it to the right. Um, you know, I think a lot of Obamacare supporters were really outraged. And it really, it kind of surprised me that this was the direction things were moving because two days ago I had written about this Washington Post poll that found the two most popular parts of Obamacare are the ban on pre-existing conditions and the essential health benefits package. And then literally two days later, the Republican amendment comes out that dismantles the pre-existing condition ban and the um, essential health benefits package. So it's well, suggests- Republicans do have a sophisticated way to handle this, though, which is that yesterday they put out a video on Twitter of Paul Ryan saying, "Oh, I didn't see the video." That they were a hundred percent committed to making oh, sure is- that no, people were pre-existing um, conditions. Kind of one of the funny things in this um, amendment is so they go through it saying states can waive out of the pre-existing conditions, and at the end there's this paragraph saying like anything you do must protect people with pre-existing conditions, even though, like, the actual language is about rolling back those protections. Anyway, so this rolls out, and I write about it. And then I get a call from one of the people who I think knows health law better than anyone else in the country. Um, this guy, Tim Jost, he blogs at Health Affairs. If you're interested in health policy, definitely do follow him. And he says, you know, did you see that Congress is exempted from all of this? And I said, no, where is that? And it was really buried in legalese. Like, you had to know that um, it was referring to section, I forget the exact reference. It was like, it refers to section like 1312C1D or something is exempted from all of this. If you go to Obamacare 1312, whatever, whatever, you see that is members of Congress. Um, And so it's really hidden in there. And um, so it turns out it was true. There was an exemption for members of Congress that essentially it says, if a state, it would probably, or if D.C., applies for one of these waivers, the plans held by members of Congress would be exempt. Members of Congress would still get the protection for pre-existing conditions. They would still get their essential health benefits, even though the other people in D.C. could somehow fall out of those. Um, So, you know, I put this article up, I go to bed, and then I wake up the next morning, and it's just kind of pandemonium around this, where Mark Meadows, the chair of the Freedom Caucus, is saying the exemption doesn't exist. Um, there are Republicans telling other reporters the exemption does exist. It was put in at the request of the Senate. Um, David Bratt from Virginia is saying the exemption exists, but it's already been fixed and isn't an issue anymore. That, that was my favorite one. Uh, <laughs> and then a few, and then an hour later, Mark Meadows was after saying the exemption didn't exist, said they are working on fixing the exemption, which seems to suggest the exemption did exist. And it really just spoke to the confusion and the lack of people being looped in on this process and kind of understanding what was going on. Um, You know, my final role in all of this, I was trying to get to the bottom of how did this exemption end up in the legislation? Like, who put it there? Why is it there? Um, There was some other reporting and other outlets saying, oh, this has to do with, um, with budgetary reconciliation rules, but no one would actually say what the rule was so you know an aide in the author of um, Tom MacArthur, who's the guy who offered this amendment. He said, "Well, Senate budget made us put it in. Senate budget made us put it in because um, oh, to meet some kind of technical rules." So I write a story saying this is why MacArthur's aides say you know it's in there. 
20 minutes later, I get a call from Senate budget saying, we absolutely did not add that in. That is not our language. I think the quote I had is, we didn't write it, we didn't add it, we didn't draft it. Um, so it is currently no one wants to take, and understandably so, like who wants to be the legislator who wrote the exemption for Congress from your own bill? But no one's willing to fess up to why it is there. None of the explanations I've heard of, you know, oh, it's for, you know, rules reasons or for like some kind of Senate process. No one's been able to explain to me what actually is the process issue. And it, it kind of speaks to, I think, why Republicans have struggled so much on health care is there isn't really a great sense of coordination or a sense of people being on the same page or really kind of thinking through the language that they're actually putting into their bills and amendments, what it will, what it actually But does. we should also, I think, drill into, like, why they need this exemption, right? Because if the bill as written passes and they don't get the exemption for Congress, but Congress still is required to get its health care through the Affordable Care Act mechanism, which is in the existing law, then it will create a situation in which no American who has a history of serious illness will be able to afford Not to become a member of Congress. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, So, like, Congress, absolutely, like they should, this bill is terrible. But it will be made less terrible if they exempt Congress from it, because it would be terrible for members of Congress to have to have the terrible waived health care no, no, plans no. So, that they're creating. But this is another wrinkle to it that I don't understand, because what they're doing, so this, the amendment doesn't get rid of the pre-existing requirement. It says states can apply for waivers. Right. The assumption is, like, D.C. is not going to apply for a waiver. Like, D.C. is a liberal place. Like, they have a lot of consumer protections. And so why you even, so, so the assumption is, you know, the members of Congress who buy through the small business exchange here in D.C., like, they probably won't even be affected by this, but they put in this exemption. Does the exemption not hit staff? It hits staff, too. Because oh, staff often buy. No, the, they have to buy. So I learned this yesterday. DC? They buy through the D.C. small oh, business exchange. I didn't know that either. Even if you're staff in Tennessee or something? Yeah, so I think, so my, I, I do not know this for sure, but my, um, my guess is they've worked out probably some deal with Blue Cross Blue Shield to like use their networks. Because um, I had thought, yeah, if you're the staff in Nebraska, you buy through mm-hmm. the Nebraska marketplace, which was um, wrong. They all have to buy through the D.C. marketplace. Huh. So the D.C. marketplace is kind of uniquely set up to handle this weird Congress situation. Because there is already, to be fair, the Obama administration also gave Congress um, their own exemption. Cong- members of Congress and their staff are the only ones who are allowed to bring an employer contribution to the marketplace, um, which was kind of like a little um, kind of controversy a few years ago. So they have kind of like a weird setup worked out with the D.C. marketplace. So so I want to back out on this for a minute (laughs) because we can get very narrow on on this exemption, and I do think it speaks to the insane dynamics of this policymaking process. But what they have done is take literally the most unpopular piece of legislation I've ever seen polled in American politics. It was 17% approval to 59, 57 against. Oh, against. I was thinking the ACA is 55%. No, no. So the one thing Republicans have done is make Obamacare much more popular. Like they have really solved Obamacare's popularity program (laughs) problem. Um, But the AHCA, when it was polled, had 70% approval, which is like, it's not a number I've ever seen for a major piece of legislation in politics before. But the thing that the Affordable Care Act's drafters always, like, 
comforted themselves with when Obamacare was unpopular was that if you pulled the individual provisions, at least those were popular. People liked Medicaid. People liked protections for pre-existing conditions. People liked the idea that you tax rich people to subsidize poor people. There was a lot of stuff they liked. They didn't like the individual mandate, but they liked almost everything else. In here, what they are doing is they have these provisions now specifically that people will hate. They have taken an unpopular bill and moved it in a direction they know, they know from public opinion will be less popular. And the reason they're doing that, and I think this is a really interesting difference between the Obamacare process and this one. You remember this, I think, from reporting on Obamacare, too. Every time anything happened with that bill in the drafting and you talked to them about it, they were always very constrained in their actions because they had this sort of like seven steps ahead approach to drafting the bill. It's like, if we do this, then, you know, when it's back to the Senate, Ben Nelson is going to get upset. And so we can't do that. It's going to drive people away. And there were all these things people wanted to do that just they weren't allowed to because Nancy Pelosi or someone would say, sorry, that's not going to work for the entirety of the process. And House Republicans, I've been talking to them about this, and a lot of them will say this very directly, like they are just trying to get the next thing done. So what happened is a House Freedom Caucus defected from the bill. Bill failed. Maybe the bill is dead forever, but the only thing they're really thinking about doing is getting the House Freedom Caucus back. What problems are created by getting the House Freedom Caucus back, say by say with the moderates, say with the public, they don't even like not have a plan for it. They're not even thinking about it yet. It's like if they can get House Freedom Caucus back, then they will try to figure out how to not lose enough of everyone else to pass a bill. If they do that, they will get it out of the House. Then it is Mitch McConnell's problem. You heard Bill Cassidy here <laughs> yesterday. He said the Senate is going to ignore this whole thing, <laughs> come up with our own bill. That's the proper way to do it. I mean, I don't know if that is the true to the process or planning. I'd heard other things from McConnell's folks. But nevertheless, this is it is happening in such a narrow and uninformed way. The players aren't talking to each other. They're not really reading each other in. It's not clear who represents whom. It's just a really insane way to try to reform the American healthcare system. And I don't think they have any plan. Like the one thing above all they have no plan for is what would happen if this thing accidentally passed and one day all these people wake up and their health care is fucked. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Freedom Caucus is solving a problem for itself, which was that it had gotten out there that the bill had died because of their objections, which I think on the first day that that was the narrative, they were really excited about because it because it made them seem important and the bill was unpopular. But as like the weeks dragged on, it'd become this thing that like, uh-oh, the whole conservative legislative agenda is halted because of the Freedom Caucus. So now they they've got this kind of like monkey off their backs. And so now if somebody kills repeal, it's gonna have to be somebody else. But it really worsens the overall caucus's problem because in a lot of ways, an ideal situation was for the most right-wing members in the safest districts to kill the bill, thus letting the more vulnerable members kind of have it both ways and like not vote for legislation that they didn't want to vote for, but also not be fighting with the base or fighting with Donald Trump. Now it's like squarely on the backs of House Republicans who might realistically lose in 2018 to like decide what they want to do. They can say, this bill is very unpopular. I don't want to lose my seat. I don't want to vote for it. Um, But then they're going to be at the front of the firing line. And normally, 
legislative caucus leaders, people in Paul Ryan's position, try to not put your most vulnerable members like right in the hot seat when you can avoid it. You're supposed to, you know, party leadership's role in part is to like protect and nurture those kind of frontline members and make somebody else like bite the nasty bullets. Um, but that hasn't happened uh, in part because, I mean, we were just saying it when we were talking about tax reform, so much of the rest of their overall legislative vision is hinged on the idea of doing a gigantic Medicaid cut. That is supposed to be the pay for to finance the tax cuts and cutting taxes is, I, I don't know how to say it, is, is very important to conservatives. They, they think taxes are really bad um, and they don't have another good way of doing it. And we're seeing that the White House, even as they released an alternate strategy for tax reform, they didn't really like get the stakeholders together. They didn't say, okay, we're going to think about this in a whole different way. They're trying to plow ahead on two parallel tracks when there's actually a, a lot of interdependency between the two things. So as Ezra says, right, it's like no one is thinking here, oh, well, what if all opposition to these plans just went away, right? Like what if this had to happen? And then I had to go be president of the United States and look people in the eye and say, like, this is going well. This is this is what I wanted for America. Um, well, this circles back to what Ezra was saying earlier, is that you can at least keep up the idea that you were going to cover everybody when it, like, is stuck in Congress or, like, gets through the House, doesn't get through the Senate. But, like, the rubber really hits the road, like, when you're not covering everybody. And, like, I think there are a lot of Obamacare, you know, enrollees who voted for Trump who, you know, are expecting, like, what will happen is their deductibles will go down. Like, when I talk to people about, like, what do you think Trump will do? Like, my health care is too expensive. The deductible is too high. Like, I want a lower deductible. And the plan will absolutely not do that. People will lose health insurance. Their deductibles will go up. Um, and I think that's, like, really where, you know, where you would see that promise actually not deliver. Well, so what happens? I mean, if you, if you do away with these consumer protections... Mm -hmm. Because um, this is a little bit different than in the old version where you were keeping the consumer protections but really cutting the subsidies. Right. Like, just a lot of people were going to lose coverage mm -hmm. because coverage would still be expensive, but now you wouldn't have the money. Uh, but now it seems like you're creating a situation where it might be quite cheap to, like, go take my tax credit and buy a thing that is, like, right. called health insurance. Well, I think but you're inching like, back to, It's like, totally right. decontent. You're inching back to what things looked like before you had Obamacare, right, as you, like, peel back these different protections. So if you get rid of, let's say, you get rid of the essential health benefits package, one of the things that's kind of interesting um, is the actual waiver process they write out, which seems to be a much easier waiver process. Usually it's a lot of work to get a waiver from the federal government. You have to submit all this paperwork, and particularly like the Medicaid waivers, for example. The negotiations can go on for quite some time. The waiver process they spell out here is basically you send in a waiver, and you have to give them a reason why you want to waive out. And one of them can be lowering premiums. Right. And like, of course you can lower premiums by covering fewer benefits. Like, that's a super easy way to do that. So you send in the waiver, you say, I'm getting rid of the essential health benefits because I want to lower premiums. Um, and if they don't respond within 60 days, the waiver is approved, assumed. So that, that is basically how the process works. So I think you would see, you know, a lot of skimpier health insurance plans. Like it really, it, it's not hard for me to imagine as you take away the changes the healthcare law made that you just kind of regress towards what we had before the healthcare law. This really is like a movement 
one of the things that was interesting to me to watch in the healthcare process over the past few months is it felt like there was a movement to the left on the part of House Republicans. Like, they were keeping tax credits, and they were keeping the ban on pre-existing conditions, and they were keeping a lot of parts of Obamacare that, I think you wrote a piece about this, Ezra, that feel like had they become entrenched over the past five or six years, as Democrats had hoped um, would happen. And this latest development is really a shift away from that. Like, it felt like we were moving in this clear direction to the left, um, and then this amendment kind of shifts back in the total opposite direction. So I think you just end up with a marketplace that looks more like what existed before the But, but under the old system, however flawed plans of the individual marketplace may or may not have been, uh, it's still, an insurance company would have to convince me that whatever it is they were offering was worth the money that they were trying to charge me. Uh, because I, I was paying for it out of pocket. But under this ACA plan, I would get what? I'd get some, as a 35-year-old Right, I forgot person, the exact number. I, you I, would get I'd get a few a thousand credit. dollars yeah. in, in tax credit. Um, so you could offer me a plan that covers nothing, right? It has a, it has a $50 million deductible, and it only covers dental surgery. <laughs> um, but it also comes with, a $2,000 gift card to Chipotle. <laughs> so then I can take my, my tax credit and go cash it in for a Chipotle gift card, right? <laughs> so it's, it's actually radically different from an unregulated, you know, to, uh, an unregulated, unsubsidized market is like, you know, it's, it's like a free market, right? You're buying and selling things. An unregulated but heavily subsidized market is like, potentially Looney Tunes. It's like anyone could sell anything. Well, I don't, I don't, I would imagine, I would give, you know, enough credit to say there would probably be some kind of thing to say, like, you cannot buy Chipotle health insurance. You still have, you like, sure? state insurance regulators. Yeah. You still have, like, an infrastructure that existed before the healthcare law, a state regulatory body that says, like, okay, like, this is a health insurance package. And if you want to call yourself health insurance in our state, you know, you have to do at least X, Y, and Z. It got a lot more regulated at the federal level, through Obamacare, but you know, keep in mind there's an incentive for states to keep their you know citizens happy, um, and though People maybe like that Chipotle. maybe that means buying your Chipotle insurance, but there's a Chipotle across the street. By the way. <laughs> That's what this this episode of the, po- of the Weeds is sponsored by <laughs> not Chipotle, not Chipotle as it turns out. Because but we're we interested are in them, that. Yes. Um, I, I think there are but two. I think there's something think, else we want to. Yeah. So this is half of the healthcare story this week. And I actually think it's the less important yes. half. So it's a funnier half, but the less important half. What is happening with cost-sharing reductions? Or, or as our colleague Dylan Scott put it, the sort of healthcare nuclear option? So, yeah, so I think this is actually the health story that matters a lot more to Obamacare's future because it could actually impact the law right now. Um, and so a little background is helpful here. Obamacare has these cost-sharing reduction subsidies for low-income enrollees on the marketplaces. These are different from the premium subsidies. So, for example, take someone who earns, like, $20,000 a year. They're getting a tax credit that brings... I'm just making up some numbers here. But let's say they get, you know, they have a premium that costs $200, and they get a tax credit to bring it down to 100 They also qualify for financial help on their um, co-pays and on their deductible. So maybe, you know, a richer person on that plan would have $25 co-pays when they go to the doctor, this person, you know, only has to pay $7 when they go to the doctor. Maybe the cost-sharing reduction, it brings their deductible down from $6,000, which is the max on Obamacare, down to, like, 
a few hundred dollars, which I've talked to some people who have subsidies that are that big. So they're very significant for low-income people. Um, they're paid by the federal government. And right now, they're, this is one of the easiest things for Trump to sabotage. Um, a few years ago, under the leadership of John Boehner, the former House Speaker, House Republicans filed a lawsuit saying that these, um, these subsidies were never properly appropriated through the health care law, that there's, they did not go through the right language to set up the, I think it's about $7 billion that the federal government needs to spend on these subsidies, and therefore the government should stop paying them. They don't have the legal authority to spend this money. Um, and the lawsuit, um, I think, surprised some observers with that it actually has started moving through the courts. It has gotten one favorable ruling at a lower court. There was, um, I think the biggest question was about standing. Well, why could Congress sue about this? They're not being harmed, but they actually had a positive finding. They did have standing to bring this case. Um, so this was pretty simple when Obama was in office. Um, you know, he, Obama, said, yes, we have the authority to pay these. We're going to keep paying these. Um, the lawsuit was moving. But then you have, and so he's defending the cost-sharing reduction subsidies. Then you have Trump come into office, and he is someone who could say, you know what, I'm dropping the lawsuit. Like, I don't think we have authority either. I oppose Obamacare. And if he drops the lawsuit, then, you know, essentially they could just stop paying them. They could agree with the House's interpretation and say, no, we don't have this authority. And that has kind of created a lot of uncertainty in the Obamacare marketplaces. Um, this is about $7 billion in Obamacare funding. A lot uh, of- A year, yeah? A year, yeah. yes. A lot of insurers say, you know, if you end this funding, like we're out of the marketplace. Um, one of the kind of bizarre things about these subsidies is if the government stopped paying them, it's not like the deductible would go back up to $6,000 for that low-income person. The insurance company would be on the hook for keeping the deductible low. So this is really about insurance companies having to spend more money that they didn't expect to. And so it's been kind of this, the biggest uncertainty about Obamacare. I was at a- very, I'm sorry, can you hold yes. on that point? Because I think it's really important yes. about the effect this would have. What would happen here is not that the plans people could buy would change. Insurers no. would still have to give yes. somebody at this income level, this level of cost sharing. Yes. So it would make that plan unprofitable for yes. the insurer to sell. Right even if they wanted to change its specifics to make it right. profitable. Because all of a sudden they were expecting, you know, let's say this person who had a $6,000 deductible, the law says, no, that person is low income enough that they only get a $300 deductible. All of a sudden the insurance company would be on the hook for that other right. amount of and money. And so the way this works, I mean, if you, if you think two or three steps ahead, right, it's like step one, insurance companies lose money because they're not getting paid back by the federal government. Step two is that they have to raise premiums mm -hmm. to cover this new higher cost yeah. structure. So the estimate from the Kaiser Family Foundation is premiums would go up 19% right. if you pull these So out. then step three is some people drop coverage because the premiums are now higher. But step four is that low-income people whose premiums are very, very heavily subsidized are still buying the plans anyway because they're insulated from the cost of the higher premium. So the federal government winds up paying anyway, through the premium subsidy mechanism. Right. Yeah, there is it's a just new... It's fewer people are covered, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't reduce the cost to the federal government. It creates a, like, two- or three-year period of, like, chaos that shakes out... No, it actually increases the cost to the federal government, which oh, is kind good. of wild. That's that if you get rid of the cost-sharing subsidies because you'd see premiums go up and you have to jack up the premium subsidies, 
Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation put out a study this week estimating that if you get rid of this program, overall government spending goes up by $2.3 billion. So you're not saving money. Like, you are costing the government money if you get rid of this. And so it's been this kind of open question, um, you know, is the Trump administration going to defend this lawsuit? Um, and they have just been so incredibly cagey about this. Um, you know, there are so many statements flying around that make it sound like maybe they will and maybe they won't. Trump tweets about this a lot in a surprising level. He keeps treat, tweeting about these Obamacare subsidies. And the insurance executives I talk to are, like, going crazy. Like, they need to decide in the next few months, like, are they going to participate in the marketplaces? And this is, like, the biggest uncertainty. This is the thing they're waiting to have resolved before they decide, like, yes, we're in or no, we're out. And so Democrats kind of came initially to these budget negotiations saying, this is uh, this is important to us. Like, we need to actually get these funds appropriated. We need to end this question about whether there's authority. And in this new budget negotiation, we need, at least for, like, the next two years or so, probably, to say, yes, these are funded in current law. Um, it seems like that's actually not going to happen. Um, there's some reporting yesterday from Politico that... Um, there's a call between the OMB director, uh, Mick Mulvaney, and House uh, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, where the Trump administration essentially said, we're not going to put it in the appropriations, but, like, we're going to keep paying them. But that still seems to, like, continue a massive amount of uncertainty. And it almost, I mean, it seems like Trump wants to hold on to the possibility of pulling them out. And, and almost in a way, like, Democrats are calling his bluff, like, saying, like, OK, like, if you, you can hold on to this. But if you blow up the marketplaces, like the politics of that are not going to be great for you. So since the initial failure of Acha, um, Acha, Acha, sorry, uh, Trump has had a consistent and strange view on healthcare, which is the whole thing is going to explode and Democrats are going to come crawling on their knees for him to pass this plan that, like, would lead to larger coverage losses in the explosion itself, right? That, that has been his idea. He has said this publicly. He has said, hey, like, we're just going to let this blow up, and then Democrats are going to be begging me to work with them. And Trump seems to have that view about this. That's yes. what is implicit and often explicit in all of his tweeting, that he's going to hold this authority, and he is going to suggest <laughs> that he will literally, like, himself publicly go pick up an ax and hack away at these subsidies that help poor people when they get sick, and then people get mad at Democrats, and then the Democrats will be desperate to work with Trump to take health insurance away from these people entirely. Now, I don't think that <laughs> makes sense. But there's been a lot of polling suggesting, including among Republicans, what would happen if Obamacare did totally blow up under Trump? Would you blame Trump? And people say, yeah, Trump's in charge. Like, he's... It is his job to, to, to make this thing work. I think in your reporting, you've often mm -hmm. heard people say, yeah, like, we are expecting him to make this better. And so what seems to have happened here is that, like, there's, like, this gun on the table. And Trump thinks it's pointed at the Democrats, and so he's grabbed it. And the Democrats think it is pointed at Trump. And every so often, Trump, like, gets away from his advisors and starts <laughs> tweeting about how he's going to fire it. And then it seems somebody <laughs> says to him, like, you can't do that because people know you're holding the gun. So, like, they know if it gets fired who fired it, and then they don't do it, 
But then the next day he tweets more, and we go through this again and again and again and again. And the upshot appears to be that they are going to keep paying the subsidies. This is exactly what's been going on. Mm -hmm. Congress has not been appropriating this money. The Obama administration has been paying it. But they're going to keep paying them while consistently saying they may stop at any moment, which might, at some point, some insurers are going to be like, this is a... This is really a mess. Like, this whole thing, it's completely uncertain. Not just the subsidies. We don't know what people are going to change. Like, it's just a mess. And so they are just, like, creating equilibrium where insurer interest in participating in Obamacare goes, like, like from here to here, you know? Like, I don't know how high that scale is. like, the way they're treating these subsidies, you could keep paying them and also collapse the insurance market by creating all this uncertainty. And so the idea then, like, who gets blamed for that? But... This is one of these things where it's one thing to let Obamacare collapse, right? It's one thing to, to just, like, see the thing get destroyed. You can argue that what's happening in Tennessee, where you have, what is it, 19 counties? 16 something, counties. 16 counties that plausibly don't have an insurer next year. The Obama administration would have worked very hard to get an insurer in. The Trump administration is not working that hard. But if there is no insurer, I think people can plausibly blame Obamacare and the Democrats for that. It's not really Trump's fault. This thing and some of these other things as Trump begins to sabotage the law in big ways and small ways, that does get blamed on Trump. And it, it, the whole thing is just very weird, but it, it really fundamentally seems to me to rest on a misconception Trump has, but not all of his advisors have, about what his points of leverage are here. But, but I think, you know, to, to zoom even further out, right, another thing that happened this week was that they floated an executive order to withdraw from NAFTA um, yesterday morning, and then yesterday evening put out a call readout where they said, oh, you know, we talked it over with Trudeau <laughs> and Peña Nieto, and it's all fine now. Um, but we could withdraw... <laughs> Like any moment, <laughs> which which is true. I mean, it's in the treaty. It, it, it says that um, Trump seems to really enjoy bluffing, right? As a strategy, he thinks that like a really. I, I think he thinks that it's like an underrated presidential tactic. He he demanded a vote on ACA, and then when members didn't want to vote on it. He was like, oh, yeah, fine. Let's let's pull the vote. He was going to withdraw from NAFTA to force the clock on renegotiation, and, and then he didn't. Uh, there was, like, maybe we were going to have a war with North Korea on Monday, um, but and they, they bust all the senators over, but then it turned out we're not going to. Um, and it's this is like in, in poker, right? It's called a, a loose, aggressive playing style. Uh, where what, what, what it, No, I mean, it is, right? So it, it's like you, you play all the hands, and if your cards are bad, you just bluff, right? Instead of folding all the time, which is boring. Um, and, you know, and I think, I think most people think that, that a loose, aggressive playing style is not a good way to make money playing poker. But if you're playing low-stakes poker with your friends, it's a, it's a lot more entertaining, right? Playing a, a very conservative uh, gambling style in a friendly game can get, can get really boring. And I want to note, I actually used to play poker with Matt. Yes. Wait, Matt, it, do you play a loose, aggressive Style of poker? Well, I don't play poker anymore. Well, when you did. You get tired of losing money. Um, <laughs> and that is your answer. <laughs> but, you know, I, so I, you sort of see it, right? It's like Trump is, like, fucking around and not thinking strategically about the powers of the presidency. He's not just taking a pass on these different things. He wants to try it out. 
Um, but it's very destructive. I mean, it's it's not a backyard poker game. Like, people's lives are actually at stake. And a lot of these moves seem very poorly thought through. His view is, you know, you can always just fold at the last minute if it looks like disaster is about to strike, which is, it's the kind of thing that, like, it's true right up until something terrible happens because nobody believes you anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but I think this is, it's pervasive and it, it shows how much you can shape policy without actually changing anything. Like, I think the the politics of uncertainty are something we're, like, starting to see more and more because of this bluffing. And people react to uncertainty in different ways, even if it's not an actual policy change. Like, on NAFTA or on Obamacare on all these issues that we're seeing, like, a lot of uncertainty on, I think it is actually a way to do policy is by making people just very insert, uncertain about what the future looks like. And that kind of leads them to make different situa- different um, business decisions and different personal decisions about what they're going to do in the next few years than if you just, like, we could end up in a situation where actually the Trump administration does the exact same thing on the cost-sharing reductions as the Clinton administration would have done. They pay them month after month. Let's say the lawsuit you know, goes in favor of the cost-sharing reductions, and we end up in the exact same scenario. But Obamacare could be totally different because of the uncertainty around it, the uncertainty that's being introduced in one version of that story versus the other. And I think we're, I'm really curious to see, you know, particularly in the Obamacare context, like how, how insurance companies react to this. They have to decide by June 21st if they want to sell health insurance. Um, we just saw yesterday Anthem, which I think is the largest carrier on the marketplaces, saying we're going to stick with Obamacare as long as these cost-sharing reductions are, are kept. At some point, Anthem has to make a decision. Like, do we think they're being kept? And I don't think they're going to have perfect certainty from the Trump administration about that. They're just going to have to make a best guess. And a lot of insurance companies, I think also um, another one, Centene, said the exact same thing. Like, we're in if the cost-sharing reductions stick around. Can Paul Ryan just drop this lawsuit weather two nasty Trump tweets about how it was a huge strategic mistake and then just, like, walk away from this? I think so. Um, I mean, I don't know if, like, his conference would flip out him. I think, like, legally, yes. He could just say, we're giving up the lawsuit. Or, you know, well, I think well, the thing... He the, could appropriate He could the appropriate money. the money would actually be the thing to do. But it seemed like Republican appropriators were willing to appropriate the money and then the White House... Yeah, that's the, the weird, like, up. if you, one of the weird things, you looked at quotes from, like, Greg Walden, you looked at quotes from, like, top Republicans who were all saying, like, we don't want to cause this instability. Like, we think we should appropriate the money. And then, so I thought the money, I, I went into this week thinking the money was going to get appropriated, but it's completely, and it's been kind of weird to see in, um... But so why don't they drop the lawsuit? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a House Republican. It's been weird to see Well, that's that- why I'm confused, because I was, I mean, I was talking, like, two, three weeks ago. It seemed like they were willing to appropriate the money because they didn't actually want the money to go away, right. but it was going to, like, score as a win for the Democrats, and they were going to get something else in exchange. I mean, sure, but let's say some, like, more right-wing members want to keep the lawsuit going, and they can just file a new lawsuit on this. I'm yeah. guessing probably the easiest solution here is just to appropriate the money so there's nothing to have a lawsuit about. One of the weird things of the dynamics around this is it actually seems like congressional Republicans, congressional Democrats are close to on the same page. Like, they don't want to blow this up. They all just want to appropriate the money. And it's not like Republicans versus Democrats. It's more Congress versus the White House on this particular issue. 
one of the many fun fights of this fun era <laughs> in American politics. We're day-to-day, week-to-week. We have no idea at all what is going to happen. That was Weeds Live at Vox Conversations. Thanks to our producers, Bird Pinkerton and Peter Leonard. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week.